0: Well, hello,
1: folks, and welcome to another edition of the Firmamental Podcast. I am your host, Raul, and as always, we got the co-host and my brother, Alex, with us, and we got a very special guest in the house tonight. Uh, I will be introducing here very shortly, but first, I'll let Alex say hello to the
0: Firmamentalist out there. Hey, everybody in the Firmamental land and the Firmadome! welcome to another great episode. Yeah, we got a
1: tremendous guest. I actually heard this uh, wonderful woman on the permaculture. Permaculture Pimp Cast with Billy Bond. So, shout out to my buddy over there. Um, I love that guy. Got uh, probably one of my favorite podcasts in the whole universe. So, shout out to him. But uh, that's where I learned about this guest and I heard this tremendous story uh, an absolutely heart wrenching story, but uh, a story of triumph over tragedy and somebody who's very passionate about the truth and holistic healing and all kinds of stuff. So, I'm going to introduce tonight's guest to you. We got Callie Blackwell. She's from, originally from the United Kingdom. Um, I believe she's in the United States now, but she's an author. She is a holistic medicinal plant practitioner. I might be saying that wrong, but she can tell you about it. <laughs> and uh, she has an amazing story and testimony. She's a truth seeker. Uh, she's a self proclaimed pothead <laughs> who likes to talk about a lot of things. And she's had an interesting life. So, with no further ado, I'd like to introduce you to tonight's guest, Callie Blackwell. How are you doing there?
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to get to together to talk to you both. This is a very interesting um platform, something that I haven't really spoken on before. You know, I I'm very much in the, you know, the the scene of talking, public speaking, but this is a different kind of angle for me. So I'm really, really excited. So thank you so much. Um yeah, I guess we'll start at the beginning because that's the best place to start, right? So my name is Callie Blackwell. I'm a, I class myself as a holistic plant medicine practitioner. So you were almost there. You were close. I'll it. close the government work. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm self-proclaimed of that. That's just something that I have fallen into um, over the last 15 years. It's not something that I ever thought that I would end up doing, but here I am. And so I guess we'll talk about the story as to what got me here and what got me here was my then 10 year old son back in 2010 in July, he was diagnosed at the age of 10 with acute lymphoblastic leukemia and man, that was a roller coaster ride that I never bought a ticket for and I couldn't get off. And it was one where we were bombarded with, this is what you have to do. Don't go on the internet. We will tell you everything you need to know. You don't, you know, just follow this protocol. Literally within 12 hours of his diagnosis, he was in theater having a line put in his chest where they could start, you know, infusing different chemotherapy drugs and it started really quickly. So they don't really give you a lot of chance to breathe or think or anything and they just bombard you with everything. And I even at the beginning kind of, I asked them when they were telling me of all the side effects of the chemotherapy when they were saying, you know, um, heart failure, liver failure, kidneys shut down, um, death, hair's going to fall out, skin's going to, like, and I said to them, because all intents and purposes, my son looked incredibly well. He had the highest second leukemic or the second highest leukemic count that they'd ever seen in that hospital. And yet he looked like he was absolutely fine. And so I said to them at the, at that time, um, you know, this this really feels like you're kind of trying to smash a walnut with a sledgehammer. Is there anything else? Is there something else? And they said, No. Categorically, no, this is it or he's going to die and we need to do this very quickly. And she said, sign the paperwork. And I said, well, what if I don't sign the paperwork? What if I say no? Because this seems a bit over the top. And she said, well, Mrs. Blackwell, if you don't sign the paperwork, then your son will be made a ward of the court and chemotherapy will happen anyway. And it's much better that you are there by his side than a foster carer that he doesn't know. Sign here. So my hands were tied behind my back. I signed the pieces of paper and, and off we went. But I didn't know then what I know now. So I, you know, it was, you just do as you're told and you go with it. And it was roughly 18 months into full on chemotherapy. He was doing really, he spent a lot of time in hospital, but other than that, he was, he was doing okay. And it was about 18 months later that he started saying that his throat was hurting. And I asked the doctors, he was being looked at every he was being looked at regularly because he was having regular chemo, you know? And his tonsils were just inflamed and they were red and then they were white and then they were black and then all this was going on. And I said to the team, I said, you know, could this be a secondary cancer? And they called me ridiculous. They told me there's no way in the world this could be a secondary cancer. I was absolutely no, I was crazy. And I said, but you told me that chemotherapy causes cancer. So why is this unreasonable? And they said no. And it took six months of me harassing them and trying to get them to look at him, where eventually, Um, An ear, nose and throat specialist looked at him and said, they need to come out right now. I've never seen anything like this in my life. So they took out his tonsils and they were calcified, which is very, very interesting. I've learned a lot since, Um, but the calcification was, I believe now, was the body's way of actually killing the cancer and containing it in the lymph nodes, which is what our body is meant to do. It's meant to do that. And what we should have done is detox and cleared everything out. But Of course, they rip out the tonsils, which are part of the lymphatic system, leaving you with. You know, a, a now not so good lymphatic system, and so they they cut his tonsils into a hundred slices, and they went off all over the world, and they determined that this was in fact cancer, but it wasn't a secondary cancer. This was a relapse of the first cancer, but it had come back in a sarcoma form. So this was this was the, they got they went down on a DNA level, and they discovered that the leukemia and what now they had realized was Langerhans cell sarcoma. Well, both they both came from the bone marrow. Now, Langerhans cell sarcoma, there's been only 50 cases since records began, and it's incredibly it's so so rare that there was only five people in the entire world that had Langerhans cell sarcoma at the time. And my son was the only one to have it as a secondary cancer and also have leukemia at the same time. So, hence why my book is called The Boy in Seven Billion because at the time <laughs> there were seven billion people on the planet and he was the only one, and so the doctors had no idea what to do no idea they just they, they looked at me and they were getting you know advice from everywhere i say america and australia and, and every single every single country was like look at it and deciding what would be the best form of um you know medication what were we going to do and because they determined that both had come from the bone marrow they said that a bone marrow transplant was going to be the way to prevent either cancer coming back this was the only way that they were going to be able to stop it coming back because these both these cancers were very aggressive, and if they didn't do this, then it was definitely going to come back, and then he was going to die. So they they sold it to us that this was we had no choice really. Um, now because they had no protocol for him, their words were, um, "We will throw everything we can without killing him, because we don't know what to give him. So we'll give him everything we can, we're just just about without killing him, but we're going to push him to the brink." So he had adult doses of chemotherapies that he'd never had before. He had another six months of really intense chemotherapy to the point where he almost died a couple of times, <laughs> was dying, but they they poisoned him so horrendously. Um, and actually at one point during this, I said to them, I said, I want this to stop. I said, the, the leukemia is currently in remission and the Langerhans cell sarcoma has been cut out of his throat. He did have to have further surgeries because it spread to his soft palate and he lost the third of his soft palate. And, so he got, you know, they, they, they did cut him about a fair bit. But um, I said, you know, there, there's currently there's no cancer present in his body, correct? And they were like, well, correct. And I said, why are we poisoning him? Why are we putting him through six months of aggressive chemotherapy when there's no cancer? I said, I'm putting a stop to this because you're killing him. And they said, well, we're worried about what we can't see, not what we can see. And I turned around to one of the doctors at that point and I said, what about your oath? I said, you sign an oath to do no harm. Like, what about your oath? And she looked at me and she said, oh, we don't sign that anymore. Or like, well, I had no recourse. I have no, like, and then it's, well, what do I do? You can't, like, your hands are tied. And then of course, you know, you can't raise your voice. You can't get angry because there's posters all over the hospital saying that they're not going to tolerate anger. And you're like, but, <laughs> this is a horrendous system. Um So we finished that and then we went on to, we had to move him to another hospital in Bristol. Now, Bristol is all the way over the other side of the country from where I was from in the UK. It's only a five and a half hour drive because England's only very tiny, but it was right on the other side of the country and that's where he was going to have his bone marrow transplant. So he went in for um, what they call conditioning, which is where he had 22 rounds of radiotherapy. He had total body irradiation. He also had targeted radiotherapy on his neck where he was pinned down to a table with a a mask on. And he had 22 rounds of that. Plus he also had like a ton of chemotherapy and this was to absolutely completely eradicate any amount of bone marrow that he had left. They needed to eradicate. You need to get it completely out so that then the donor could come in and give the bone marrow and that could be put into Darren's body. And then he would engraft with that and he would produce his own blood cells and then he would, you know, hopefully neither cancer would come back now they told us worst case scenario we'd be in the hospital for seven months that was worst case scenario well he had his first bone marrow transplant on march the 1st 2013 and within within weeks it had failed um sadly Darren had what was called um adenovirus which is a simple cold to you or but when you have a no immune system, because obviously your bone marrow is where your where your red blood cells, where all of your blood cells are made in your bone marrow, as is your immune system. So when you have no bone marrow, you have no functioning immune system. So literally, a common cold can wipe you out. So I was he was in isolation for two years of his life. He spent in complete Ooh. isolation where it was only me and the nurses could go in, um, and the doctors obviously, mm-hmm. and I would have to wash every single item of clothing they had every single day in a hot wash i'd have to tumble dry it on a hot on a a really really hot and i have to fold everything up into plastic bags disinfect it all take it into his room his teddy bears were in plastic bags. like yeah
1: i i want to ask a couple questions and and i want you to continue on but like there's so much information to pack in right there right so like you say the bone marrow is is the the part of our anatomy that produces our Mm -hmm. blood cells. And for those that don't know, the lymphatic system are placed throughout strategic points in our body and aren't those white blood cell producers. So that's also depleting his immune system. He's going through this eradication, through these radical chemotherapies, this nonstop one treatment after another, just being obliterated. Poor kid sounds like he's been through the ringer. At this point, it's been three years. So is he 13 years old? And he's been going through this this for three years. He's not having contact with anybody. You know, I mean, I just, that's, it's just heart wrenching to think that a child and he, and he must've really had the fight to survive. And for you, what I wanted to ask you, I mean, this had to put your whole life on pause. Was this, Mm -hmm. were you working at this time? Were you with him? Was this your full-time job? Like how, how were you even supporting yourselves and able even to go through and afford all these, these treatments? And I mean, wow, did you, were you getting donations? Were you like. Were you covered through insurance? Because I can't imagine the medical bill for all of this. And yeah. obviously, it doesn't even sound like you're able to work because you're taking care of your son full time. And I heard in your other interview, don't you have another child? Doesn't he have a little brother, too? Like, how it, are you handling all this? Like, why wow. It was a
2: trip. <laughs> it was, uh, it was it, I learned managing skills. <laughs> I really did um so up until the point that he became sick i was actually a bouncer i've been a bouncer for seven years in nightclubs so i ran the front door i was i was the
1: head door. <laughs> yeah. I see god was does, gonna... god 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 chose you to go through this because he knew you could handle it he knew you were tough and he wouldn't Everything. you know the, in in his holy word he says that he will never give you more than you can handle i mean look at Job. you know what i mean Like uh, when you've been pushed, you have been pushed to the very, very edge and never, never fell off. So much loss to you, but continue on with this tremendous story. So, so you're three years deep, you know, now he's in isolation, you know, you you still have another child that you're raising and like, I don't even know how you did this. So just continue on. But I wanted the listeners to really just think about and and put the whole thing in, in, in perspective for them.
2: Yeah. So I... I mean, being in the UK, we don't have to pay for medical treatment. We do. It comes out of our insurances and things. We we pay national insurance. Um, so it does, but we don't have medical insurance. Um, his treatment at the end of it, I think I asked how much it would have cost, and it was over three million pounds. So it's probably about five million dollars, something like that was his what it all cost in the end. Someone was making a pretty penny, weren't they, out of that and um, my other child i was very lucky i was married to my second husband um simon at the time and he um he looked after my youngest one most of the time we were very split and it was it was a very conscious thing of mine where i wanted my youngest son to not be so affected i knew he was going to be affected by this you can't mm-hmm. not he was 5 years younger so he was 5 when Daryl was 10 and so he's ah. met been all those years you know and um it was it was difficult but we we did our best, and there was often times where I'd spend a week in hospital, my husband would come um my ex husband would come to the cafe, we'd sit and have a cup of coffee together, swap peas and and we'd and we we'd, we'd split and ships passing in the night, and it was like that for a long time um I had to give up work obviously to look after him um and we were very lucky that the benefit system in the u k he got my son with disability benefits, so I had my rent paid for me um I was able to do a lot of living just by just because of the fact i went on benefits social security i guess is what you'd call it here and uh-huh. um, now even that was not going to cover what it costs so yeah we had people raising money i in those three years had to find an extra like thirty thousand pounds to pay for just the travel to get to him from hospital hospital beds things that he needed equipment wheelchairs things that they would give us um yeah it was it was it was a tough one, <laughs> but you find out your community really does start coming together when someone gets a child with cancer. You know, your community really do get together and it was amazing. I couldn't have done it without them help. I really couldn't. People looked after my youngest one. Took him, you know, it was it was, uh, it was a community effort. But, but yeah, so he's three years down the road. He's having his first bone marrow transplant and he had adenovirus. And he had a cold and the treatment they were giving him for adenovirus destroyed his immune system. <laughs> So they came to me and said, look, if we treat the adenovirus, what we're doing is we are really severely affecting his up and coming bone marrow transplant that's trying to engraft, it's trying to do what it needs to do. And it did. And after 20, 22, 23 days is when he started making his own blood product. Um, But because they had to keep giving him the drug for adenovirus, it just, his blood count just started going down and down and down. And it just dropped to the point where they said this has failed. And so the option was another one. So he had a second one from the same donor, a German guy, who donated loads more bone marrow, sent it over, and Darren had his second one, but they were still treating the adenovirus. They were still, they were still giving the same drugs. So they go and give the second transplant and the same thing happens because they're still treating the virus. Now he also had what is called graft-versus-host disease. Now this is very interesting because Um, You're absolutely right about the lymphatic system as well being our our spleen is actually the thing that really produces a lot of white blood cells and his spleen through this treatment was completely disabled. So um, yeah, it it makes no sense. It's very backwards when you look at it. But um, So he had the the second bone marrow transplant, but the graft versus toast disease was where if you had a liver transplant or a kidney transplant, your immune system would see the kidney or the liver as a foreign object. So it would try and push it out it would try and reject it so you'd have to be on anti-rejection drugs for the rest of your life to suppress your immune system so that your immune system doesn't reject the new organ with a bone marrow transplant the new immune system is your your body is a foreign object to the new immune system because your immune system is not yours anymore so your entire body is trying to be rejected by the new bone marrow so he had he he ended up his skin really took and a lot of um, he got really dry. Like he looked like a lizard. He was, his skin was like he was really scaly. Um, he ended up with ulcerations his entire mouth, all the way to his rectum, everywhere in between. He had to have a colonoscopy and an endoscopy at one point, and they took twelve sections. They cut out twelve sections from his mouth to the other end to see. And it was throughout his entire body. His stomach it was affected by it. Like he was his whole body was being rejected by his brand new immune system, and so. When the second one failed, they said, look, we're, we're not going to bother trying to give him another donation because it's the same as going to happen again. The graft-versus-host disease is just too horrendous. So what we're going to do is we're going to give him his own cells back. So thankfully, before they did the conditioning, um, they harvested uh, a big bag of his own bone marrow just in case as a rescue dose, they called it. And I'm thank God, because they, they don't do this anymore which is crazy. They don't do this anymore. They don't take a rescue bag anymore because it's not cost effective. And so I now know of two people that have their children have currently died because they didn't take this rescue dose. So um, they had that on ice. And so bear in mind, this bone marrow was the bone marrow it's been through three and a half years of chemotherapy. It's got the two cancers in there. They just said, well, we're going to give him back his own bone marrow. That's what we think we're going to do. And they said, we're not going to treat the adenovirus anymore either. So going to take around about 21 to 23 days for the bone marrow to kick in. We're not treating the adenovirus. One of them is going to win. I suggest you pray. And that's why I was like, what? <laughs> what? What do you mean? And he said, well, either his bone marrow transplant kicks in or the adenovirus gets in first. Like we don't know which, you know, so I suggest you pray. And so I guess I did. And I prayed to the Google gods and I said, normal like just natural remedies for adenovirus like surely it can't be that hard it's just a cold like surely so i found echinacea olive leaf extract um lipospheric vitamin c um, powdark tea lemon balm, chamomile for the for his mouth and all these like manuka honey all these different things and off i went and i went and spent about three hundred dollars on all of this stuff and I brought it back to the hospital, and I just started superloading him with all of these very natural things that were just plants, God-given, normal things. And within a week, I had his adenovirus gone. I had his I had his adenovirus down from three point two million to just over a thousand. And this is when I call him Doctor Doom in my book, and it's because he seemed to rebel on giving me bad like giving me bad news. I don't know. I don't know what it was with him, but. He came in and he said, um, I don't understand what's happening. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, Darren's um, Adeno count has gone back up to 3.2 million overnight. But he doesn't look ill. But his counts are saying he's on death's door. And this is just, you know, we don't understand what's happened. And this is really bad news because now it means that, you know, the adenovirus is going to get him. And I said, well, can't this be a mistake? I said, from 3.2 million slowly down to 1,000 and now overnight back to 3.2. I said, could this be a mistake? no, absolutely not. We don't make mistakes like this. And I was just, okay. And I was devastated because I thought, well, that's it. I I thought I was doing such a, I thought what I was doing was working. Well, just as he was leaving the room, he looked at all the stuff on the table and he went, oh, and what's all this then? <clears throat> and I said, well, echinacea does this, elderberry does this, um, olive leaf extract does this with the proteins and yada, yada, yada. And he just looked at me and he went, well, it's not working, is it? And he walked out the door. Like it was some kind of well, if I can't heal your kid, then nobody can. Like attitude. I'm not sure what it was, but I was just I was left in that room sobbing, sobbing at like nine o'clock at night, and it was a few hours later. Um, another doctor came to the door, and he said, "Oh, Mrs. Blackwell," he said, "I I, I have some news for you." And I was like, "Okay, he hit me with it." Like, oh, what else are you could tell me? And he said, "Oh, there was a mistake down at the lab. His his count is it's just under a thousand now." And uh, I said, thank you so very much. Uh. Thank you for putting me out of my misery. And the next morning, Dr. Doom came back and he was like, oh, oh, I've got something to tell you. About. And I said, it's all right. I said, a doctor came last night and put me out of my misery. I know there was a mistake down at the lab. I read, yes. He said, you know, but this doesn't usually happen. But isn't that good news? And I just looked at the table and I went, doesn't work. No. And he, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and so he, he's, he, he smirked on me and he left the room again. And unfortunately, Darren's third bone marrow transplant, um, this was an anomaly, something else that they'd never seen before. His T cells were all his, but all of the other cells were the transplant, were the donors, even though according to blood tests beforehand, there was nothing in there. Apparently some <laughs> some putting in Darren's cells had like, G'd up the other cells. And so now he, he they did a chimerism test and the chimerism, like when you have a cat that has like different colored faces. Yeah. They do a chimerism test to see how much of the bone marrow is yours and, and kind of what's going on. And it was basically, yeah, his T cells were his, but all of the other cells were the donors. And Darren effectively had two sets of DNA, had two blood types, was just, just an absolute, they, they looked at me and said, oh, we, we don't know what's like, we've never seen this before. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. And within a few days it became fairly obvious to me what was going to happen and they actually called me into the office with all this paperwork and they said we have no idea what's going on like what do you think is going to happen I said oh you're asking me okay well I said I have a feeling that the two immune systems are going to battle it out to the death and it's going to fail and they said yeah that's kind of what we think and that's exactly what happened and so in October mm-hmm. 2013 thank god I've, I, I've I've thanked God for many, <laughs> many things throughout this journey. Thank God somebody who ever took the the, the the rescue dose, split it into two bags. And so they had one bag left for him. And they said, listen, if this doesn't work, this is it. Like there is nothing left from this. There is no way, um, there is no scientific way that you can live without a bone marrow. You know, and if this doesn't work, we have nothing else that we can give him. And they said, listen, we're going to give him more chemotherapy to make sure there's absolutely nothing in there. We're gonna give him, you know, more, more drugs, more this. And Darren actually said to me, he Went, I don't want it. Leave me alone. Like let me die. Seriously, let me die. And I said, I can't let you do that. I can't, you know. And if I go back about, let's say maybe three months, it was after his second transplant had failed. He was sat in the bath and I I was sat on the edge of the toilet and I just looked at him and I was like how are you not angry? <laughs> like, how are you not really angry at the world? I said, because he was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome, autism, and ADHD when he was eight years old. And then he'd cancel when he was 10 years old, cancel when he was 12 years old, like all of it. And I just said, and he always smiled. Like, you always, he, he had his moments where he was like, I'm just, I'm down. Like, I've had this, I'm in so much pain. But he predominantly, most of the time, walked around with a smile on his face, just making the most of it. And I just said to him, I don't, I I don't understand how you are the way that you are. Like, please like tell me how, how you're not angry at the world. And he said, um, he said, well, mom, I chose this. So I can't be angry because I chose this. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, mom, he said, throughout our many lives, our souls have to experience all there is to experience. And it's only when our souls are strong enough that they take on their biggest challenge. This is my biggest challenge. I'm not coming back. This is it okay. And, and I said, okay, I mean, absolutely. That's your truth. I believe you absolutely believe you. And I said, um, and then he looked at me and he said, and I chose you, he said, because you needed to learn some lessons. (laughs) And then he said, and I chose dad because he needed to learn a lot more. And he said, but we all, we all got into this together. This was a journey that we all agreed on. And it's because it's what our souls need for their evolution. And we need to go through these things in order to become better people. And that's, you know, so I was like, okay. So um, when it came down to it, when they said, you know, we're not, we're going to give you more chemotherapy and we're going to go with this fourth transplant, and he said, no, leave me alone. I don't want to. I said, well, unfortunately, mate, you picked me. <laughs> and, uh, and I think you also picked me, not just because I needed lessons, but because I'm tenacious and I'm not going to let you give up. I'm not going to let you give in. I know this is painful. I know it's hard. I've watched you every step of the way, and I'm in awe of you but there's still one more chance. And while there's this chance, we have to take it because if we don't, then we'll never know. And I said, what's going to happen? I said, this is your biggest challenge, dude. You're going to give up. And he's like, no, (laughs) excellent teenager. No, absolutely not. So, um, so yeah, so they did the chemotherapy, made him pretty sick again. Um, And then they came in with the fourth and final transplant in the October, 2013. And three days later, he trapped his fingers down the side of his hospital bed. And he got two catastrophic infections in his hands and he already had an infection in his mouth. He had Klebsiella in his, in his mouth and had eaten a third of his, well, a large chunk of his tongue. It's like um, MRSA is like, um, not MRSA, Klebsiella is like MRSA on steroids. It's like, it's really devastating. And the infections that he picked up in his hands were um, cellulitis and herpes whippo. And so his three fingers went from being normal fingers to being very swollen and very red. And basically, they looked like he had frostbite. The ends of his, like all the blood flow stopped. And so the, as the infection just ravaged and ravaged and ravaged his body, obviously this new immune system was just being absolutely hammered. And we ended up, I actually ended up saying to the hospital, um, can we have a transfusion of granulocyte? And they said, oh, well, that's a good idea. Actually, yeah, we could (laughs) I thought, I I shouldn't be the one telling you this. Like, you're the one that goes to to school for a long time and gets paid a lot of money. Why am I coming to you with these ideas? Like, but honestly, if you read my book, if you read my book, you will see the amount of times that I had to be like, where's this? Why are you doing this? What's going on here? What is this? He shouldn't be having this. Why hasn't he had this now? And um, yeah, (laughs) so we had granular sites, which are, you can transfuse, you know, red blood cells. You can transfuse platelets, which is what makes your blood sticky. You can't transfuse white blood cells. But what they can do is get granulocytes from a matched host who um, can, you can have the granulocytes and then they turn into the white blood cells. It's like, it's almost like stem cell kind of predominantly a little bit like that. And so my brother stepped up and he was a match. And Darren had granulocytes, didn't work, didn't, didn't do anything. This, this infection, these infections were just ravaging him. And so it got to December the 1st, which was his 14th birthday. And we had a little party and some people came and he was just in the worst way. Like he was not in a good way. And his tongue was being eaten away. He had, he had abscesses all over his face. His fingers were just, yeah, necrotic, you know. And I he was on ketamine, pesadin, fentanyl, morphine, you name it, he was on it. They couldn't give him any more pain relief. So they started talking about amputating his hand. And I said to them, you're not amputating his hand. Like the kid's dying. Like if you amputate his hand, he has no platelets. He's going to bleed to death on the table. He has no reds. He has no white. So he can't even fight an infection if you chop his hand off. I was like, no. I said, listen, can you not? The hand doctors came in from the specialist hospital and they all stood there telling me that they wanted to amputate his hand and they wanted to amputate it across like, so it would take yeah. off the, the thumb, the index, and the middle finger. And Darren said, you're not, you're not leaving me like a lobster. Like If you're going to take my hand, take the whole thing. And I said, hang on a second. Again, sledgehammers walnut. I said, can you not just numb it? Can you not just like, go in with a neurectomy and take out the nerves, sever the nerves, cauterize the nerves if you have to, you just make it so that you can't feel his hand ever again? And they turned around to me and said, well, that's rather permanent. Oh, as opposed to an amputation, it's going to grow back, right? I just honestly, he, 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 Alex has put his hand in. I spent four and a half years like this. Go, what do you mean? And I, I said, look, the boy's dying. And they said, oh, nobody told us that. I said, right, well, the boy's dying. I don't want him maimed any further. They've already maimed him, cut, burnt and poisoned him beyond recognition. I don't want him any more like chopped around. I would like him to be very whole if that's okay. So they agreed to do the neurectomy. Now, just before this, I had been speaking to the doctor and I said, is there nothing else that we can do for the pain? And they said, no, we've exhausted everything. And I said, well, I've been looking on the internet and I've discovered a drug that is available in Europe called bedrocan. And bedrocan is a cannabis based product that is used for pain relief. And I said, all you have to do is write a prescription. I found other documents of people being written prescriptions, going over to the Netherlands, picking it up, coming home across the borders. All you need is a prescription. I'll go. I'll drive the eight hours. I'll go and get it. And she said, we can't do that. It's not licensed for children. Neither is chemotherapy. Most chemotherapy drugs aren't licensed for children, but they, they do it anyway. And so I said, okay. And so I thought, well, what's, what's the main ingredient? It's cannabis can't be that hard to get hold of and I I was trained I used to be a bodybuilder and I was training at the gym (laughs) I was training at the Mm -hmm. gym it was it was my main source of kind of stress you know release and things like that it kept me sane and so I would go to the gym every morning for like an hour and a half and then I'd walk up to the hospital at like eight o'clock and I'd sit with Denver for the whole day and that was my routine now one of the guys I trained with in the gym had actually said to me at a similar time he said if you looked into cannabis and I said, no. And he said, well, for cancer and things like that, it's really good. And I said, but he doesn't have cancer anymore. This is not the cancer. This is like, this is treatment that's messing him up. I said, I don't know. And he said, you should really look into it. And I said, well, actually, you know, I looked into this drug called can. He said, look, I can get you some. He said, I literally have a four bedroom house that's full of cannabis. And that's what I, I grow it. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> he said, so I can get you some. So that's what he did. Met him in a car park, got a bunch weed. <laughs> Went and made what I class as a tincture, and I made it to put in a vape pen. I didn't, I didn't understand what I was doing. I, I made it to put in a vape pen so that he could sit in the hospital and be vaping this cannabis tincture (laughs) and give him some pain relief. Um, it didn't work. Unfortunately, just wasn't potent enough, and I didn't know what I was doing. And it, it, really, it just was not strong enough to get rid of that pain. So we kind of just, well, I tried, failed. You know, left it as a, as a, it just didn't work. And so fast forward, they've severed the nerves in his hand. He's now got what like, looked like Mickey Mouse bandages because they also debrided pretty much down to the bone. They took away all the dead material and they said, listen, these bandages must be kept on at all times. Do not take them off. They have to be changed in surgical settings. It's pretty disgusting under there. Make sure that you keep these bandages absolutely safe. It was okay. So it was around about December the 8th, so seven days after his 14th birthday, they took me in the office and they said, We're at that point. There is nothing left for us to do. We can't. Um, they said that nobody has ever engrafted with a bone marrow transplant after 50 days. If it hasn't happened within 50 days, it's not going to happen. And it's supposed to happen between 21 and 25 days. And we were now on day 40 ish and there was nothing in there. So they said, Listen, we we can keep him alive. For probably another six months on blood transfusions, you know, antibiotics. He was effectively on a huge amount of antibiotics. And I called this his conscious life support machine because they said without it, he wouldn't be alive, you know? And so he was, Darren was very much kept in on everything, kept in on all of the decisions. He knew everything. I didn't hide anything from him. Um, he's old enough to understand. And plus, it's his life and his journey. He has to know what he's up against. And so when they said to me on December the 8th, and they said, listen, um, you know, we can keep him alive. But, and I said, well, this is no quality of life, is it? Like, I don't, I, I, I don't want him spending the last six months of his life like this in a hospital, in a room, but he can't move. I said, I would, I would rather take him to a hospice and let him have however long he's got left. I'd let, let him live as a child, at least if it was just for, you know, oh, however. And I said to them, um, when I take him off, this conscious life support machine. How long are we talking? Like give me like, how long are we talking? And they said three days, a week at most, if you're lucky. I said, okay. And they said, when do you want to go? And I said, well, I need to go speak to Darren <laughs> and we will, we will decide. And eight, yeah, that was the eighth. We left the hospital on December the 11th and took an ambulance journey down to the, down to the hospice, unhooked him up everything. And yeah, we had Christmas on December the fourteenth. It was beautiful. It was the best Christmas ever. <laughs> like Hospices, children's hospices, are just something else. There's something else. He had a jacuzzi there. Like he had people wanting to look after him all the time. He's he was there for end of life, but he knew what he was there for. You know, he knew. He had an amazing room. They decorated beautifully. Christmas trees. Like it was. It was just lovely. And so he had his three days, and then he was still there. And he didn't go anywhere for a little while. Now we went there on day forty-seven, so like three days. You know, if it hasn't happened, it's not going to happen. So we just kept kept living and waking. I I started to sleep in in his bed with him, um, holding his hand because I was convinced that I was going to wake up one morning with a cold hand in my hand, and uh. it didn't want to miss a moment with him. So I was, I have a, a neurotic mom. I was sleeping in his bed with him and stuff, but um. It was, it was very interesting how I attribute Darren's journey to bringing me to God because a lot of people who go through something like this will say there's no God because if there was a God, this would have happened to children. And it's like, <laughs> that's not how that works. We have free will no. and this is man-made. Cancer is predominantly man-made. God didn't do that. And so um, I had gone the other way where his whole journey with me took me absolutely into the arms of god and um you know we were in the hospice for a couple of weeks and he was still there and we were on day we were on day like 70 at this point and i said and and to be honest they had actually there's a drug called medazolam um i don't know what it's called in this country but um medazolam is a drug that they will use for um speeding up the process when somebody gets anxious about their impending death they get anxious and so they give a drug called midazolam, which speeds up the process. And that sounds like euthanasia to me. And, and they said, no, it's not euthanasia. And I said, yes, it is. It absolutely is. If you're speeding up the natural process, <laughs> then that's euthanasia. Right. And they <laughs> drew that drug up twice. And thankfully, they didn't give it to him. Um, intervention, something happened where he just, he just didn't need it. So they didn't give it to him. Now it got to day 70. And... He's still alive and he's starting to get very, very anxious. He's starting to have night terrors. He's starting to, you know, I just want to go. I want to go now. Why am I still here? This is dragging on. And his stomach started to shut down. His other organs started to get very sluggish. And so they were telling me that, you know, the, the end is imminent. We just have to wait. Um, and Darren was getting very, very anxious about this. So they started to give him morphine and they started to really up the morphine. Now, his last dying wish, they make death plans. Um, with people who are dying, as much as well as they make birth plans, you know, and they ignore them equally as much. They ignore them both because in Darren's death plan, he purposely said, "I do not want to die on morphine." He said, "I don't want to have a bunch of morphine." He said, "I." I he looked at me and he said, "Mom, they've taken everything else from me. They're not having my death. I want to experience a transition. Don't let them numb me." So when they started to up morphine, morphine to sub- subdue him and sedate him, and he was in and out of consciousness, and I was like, no, he's already, like, he, it's like he's already dead. I'm not having this. Like He needs to be alive while he's alive. So um, he became very anxious. And so I, um, I actually asked them for a bimarrow aspirate, which is where they go and they take a really fat needle and they go into the, the ball joint of the hip. That's where most of the bone marrow, like you can get a really good reading from there. And she came back to me that evening and she said, I'm really sorry, but there's nothing in there. There's absolutely nothing in there. His neutrophil count, which is just one of the five uh, white blood cells, his neutrophil, which is what we look at for terms of seeing how susceptible you are to infection. Anything above one is okay. It's getting on the good side, but anything below one, you're neutropenic and you are in danger of dying of a cold. His neutrophil count was 0.0005. That's nothing. It's negative. There's nothing there. So they said, you know, we we just have to wait. Now, Darren was becoming very anxious. So I was like, okay. So I went back in the room and I said, there's nothing in there. And he said, good, I'm glad. And I said, so am I. And he said, because you know what? If there was something in there, I'd be prodded. I'd be poked. I'd be back in the hospital. It'd be back to tests and this and that and the other. He says, I want an end to this. It's been going on for long enough now. I want an end to this, and I felt the same way. I absolutely felt the same way. And in a bid to help him calm down a little bit and not be so aggravated and upset, I I still had the tincture that I'd put in a vape pen. I still had it, but I had it in a jar now. And I looked at the jar and I thought, cannabis chills you out, doesn't it? Like that's why a lot of people smoke it: right. calm them down, chill them out. So I thought, what if I just like. Bang a load in his mouth. What if I just like get him to eat it instead of a vape? What if I do that? So that's what I did. And he was on board and I said to him, look, I'm just, let's try this. And he was like, I'm, I'm up for that. So I did. I drove about five mil and I put it under his tongue and it tasted like honey. It was really, really lovely. And within moments, I watched his demeanor. I watched him. It was like a body scan went over him from his head down to his toes. I watched every part of his body just relax and his shoulders dropped. And he, and he laid back in his bed and he just sat there and he was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And that to me was already a miracle. It was, okay, this is amazing. This could be the answer to give him the death that he wanted. Fantastic. Now to my shock, <laughs> a nurse turned up at the door with a drug called cyclozine. Now cyclozine is an antiemetic. It's an anti sickness drug. And cyclozine is an anti-emetic that is, is intravenous. So it goes straight into the vein, goes straight into the blood. Now, as I say, Darren had a, a line in his chest. He had lots of other lines. He had loads of different lines in his arms and his chest. No, but he had one in his chest at this point called Hickman line. And in the hospital for about nine months before this point, the doctors and nurses had felt so sorry for him um, because he was just having such a hard time of it that they would, and also they didn't have the time. It's meant to be done over a five-minute push, and they didn't have the time to stand there for five minutes putting it in. So they would hook him up to his line, put the syringe in his hand, and he would bang it into himself.
0: Yeah. Now this
2: this gave him an effect like heroin, and his words to me were, "Mum, it's like a soft, comfy, comfy blanket where I feel safe." And so he became very addicted to this drug, cyclazine, to the point where he'd be on his buzzer and he'd be shouting at the nurse, "He's like, where's my cyclazine?" And they were like, "You can't have it for another two hours," and and he was, it was just awful. It was. It was heroin addict kind of plucking, you know, and he said it was painful when he couldn't have it. And so they would just keep giving it to him, and giving it to him. And so when we were in the hospice, everybody knew to be on time with their cyclist Otherwise there was hell to pay. And the nurse turns up with the tray and I looked at her and thought, shit, <laughs> what if what I've just given him contraindicates contra- that? It, so- and he he dies like right in front of me right now because I know he's dying, but I don't want it to be my fault. Like so, I didn't need to worry about that because Darren took one look at her and he went, "Oh, you can take that. I don't want it." And I and I I looked at him and I looked at her and she looked at me and she looked at him and I said, "Take it away before he changes his mind." And when she went, I said, "Are you sure? Like you you have been like clocking for that for nine months?" And he said, "I don't need it. I don't want it." He said, "I really don't feel like I need it." He said, "I feel really good in myself." So that was it. No more morphine, no cyclazine, no more sleeping tablets, no more medications. That was it. He was on nothing now other than the tincture I was giving him. And so I kept giving it to him. And this was on day 70 that I started giving it to him. I was giving it to him four or five times a day. He was just, he was awake. He was compos mentis. He was aware. He was happy. He was pain-free. He was like really joyful. He was did, uh, he, You know? Did
1: the hospital know that you were giving this to him or are you doing this in secret?
2: There was, one nurse, there was one nurse that I was very, very, very close to. Um, and I think, you know, when you get into a hospice, you get very close yeah. to some of the nurses in there. It's different from a hospital. And she, she did know and she called it the magic under the bed because that's where the jar was kept under the bed. <laughs> and so she called it the magic under the bed because she just saw what a dramatic turnaround it was for him. Even though now currently he's still dying. But this was for palliative care, this was something they'd never seen before. They were used to things like morphine, sleeping tablets for dazzle, you know, they were used to that kind of stachery, just numb them till they die stuff.
3: Yeah. And
2: they weren't, they just hadn't seen anything like this before. And so, as I say, for me already, this was a miracle. I was like, well, this is great. Cause now I get I get my boy until I don't, but up until that very last moment, he's still gonna be alive. And he gets the death that he wanted. He gets his wishes fulfilled. And this is this is wonderful. And so, we just kept giving it to him. And on day seventy-five, um, we were sat in the lounge, and he was watching a film. And Darren had his hand in between his legs. And he was just asleep, and he's woken up and he's pulled his hand out. And one of the bandages came off his fingers. Now he handed, he held his hand up to me and said, "Mom, look at my finger." <laughs> and I just said, What? What am I looking at? Because all I could see was normal was a normal finger. And I said, What am I looking at? And he goes, Mum, my bandage has come off my finger. And I grabbed his hand and I looked at it and his finger looked like mine, but a lot thinner and with no fingernail. But there was blood flow. It had healed. There was, there was healing. Now you can't physically even grow skin cells without a functioning bone marrow. You can't. And I knew this. So I said, oh my God, like what, what's going on? So obviously I called a nurse in and I was like, we need a new bandage because the like bandage has come off and the nurse is like, oh my God, we need to do a blood test. And I said, look, five days ago, there was nothing in his bone marrow. If it's not in his bone marrow, it's not in his blood. And they said, we need to do a blood test. And lo and behold, they did a blood test and it came back and I will never forget it. I was sat opposite a, a, one of the nurses called Mark and he sat opposite me on the big dining table and he sat down opposite me with this piece of paper folded up blade and he pushed it in front of me and he said you need to look at this and I lifted the paper up and his neutrophil was 0.25 and his blood his red bloods hadn't gone up his platelets had held um at a a measly seven (laughs) whatever they'd held where they hadn't been holding before um and his neutrophil count was now 0.25 from 0.0005 and so they looked at me and said he's like we don't know what's going on and I said well I mean, what does this mean? And then they said, he's not dying anymore. Like, w- But we obviously we need to do more tests. Now, Darren's worst nightmare, Darren's absolute worst nightmare had just happened. And the doctor actually came into Darren and said, Darren, you know, you're not dying anymore. Like, this is amazing. This is what your blood count says. And he said, you know, if you get a temperature, because beforehand getting a temperature, a spike temperature is a protocol of three days of antibiotic. you know, all that kind of stuff. And cultures and all kinds of different work and she said well you know he had a dnr i'd signed the do not resuscitate on him so you know any any temperature was just we just let nature take its course like we're not intervening so now she said well what do you want me to do if you get a temperature and excuse my language but he said you can leave me the alone and yeah. doc- the doctor chastised him and said that's rather flippant. And I said, 30 seconds ago, the kid was dying. I mean, I've literally planned his funeral with him. I planned everything, to the hearse, to the music, to the costumes. He planned costumes for everybody. He was, was going to go out last. Laugh. <laughs> and I said, he's he's literally, he'd made a will. You know, he left his PlayStation. He, I said, he he's, he's really come to terms with the fact that he's dying. And now you're telling him that he's not. And you just expect him to be joyous about this. And ultimately, you know, his, his, his organs were still kind of, he still felt like death, you know, nothing, just because that had happened, like all his internal didn't just stop, you know, he, his road to recovery was long. And I know that to him it was insurmountable. And he said to me, this was a little while afterwards, he was able to convey it to me. He said, mom, he said, you have to understand that I was stood on the, on the threshold of the door and I was looking out. To everything I've ever wanted. The fields I grew up in, my PlayStation, my BMX, my friends, no more pain. Like I was 10 years old again. He said, and someone slammed the door in my face and told me to turn around and walk back through hell. I didn't have it in me. I just didn't Ooh. have it in me. And I was he hated me for a little while for saving his life. He hated me. And I I I I didn't take it personally. I got it. I understood. Because it was also my worst nightmare because as much as I didn't want him to die, I also didn't want to, I didn't want him to suffer anymore. Like I knew that that meant prodding, poking, back in hospital, this, that, and the other, and there's never an end to it, you know. And um, so, after eight weeks, we were evicted from the hospice. <laughs> they said, "You don't need to be here anymore. He's not dying, um, so you need to leave." They didn't want us back in hospital, but we couldn't go home either. So they put us in a in a, a hostel with sixteen other families who all had children with cancer as well, who were all on the beginning of their cancer journeys. And we'd just been through, absolutely through the ringer. And they put us in that environment. And it just, my son lost his mind, like absolutely lost his mind. And he went, basically, he tried to starve himself to death for the following six months. Um, But during that time, after we were evicted from the hospice, I was still giving him the tincture. And when his immune system, when his neutrophils got to above one, I felt safe enough to take the cannabis away and Mm -hmm. I watched his blood count half. So I gave it back and it doubled and I took it away and it half. And I knew that I had a very small window of opportunity to make sure whether this was the cannabis or whether this was just an anomaly, just another. (laughs) Basically,
1: basically at this point you are doing real science testable, repeatable and provable. Right. Yeah. And I did want to interject because it's, so much to take in and before i forget some of these tremendous questions that i have for you i just i his fortitude and to go through everything that he had in his will to live and i know that there's points where he was screaming for mercy and he was he was you know wanted to walk through the threshold to the to the next realm you know but i mean i just think about being a kid and and some of the things that you talk about, and I know because I used to be an advanced EMT and I used to pick up people from hospice and shout out to the hospice nurses because they're cut from a different cloth. They are mm-hmm. literally angels walking the earth and they are different than everybody else in the medical industry. Like the, the sweetest people that I've ever met in my life working in the medical field before I left because of, we don't need to get into that. Mm-hmm. But uh, go where those hospice facilities. Yeah. And it, you know, uh, they're just different. Uh, Kind of people, man. So shout out to them. But uh, just thinking about him and the way you're explaining him because I've seen you know patients with ports and this and that hooked up to machines and EKGs and you know and then he's wearing bandages. He can't use his hand. I know he's you said he loved his PlayStation. He probably couldn't even play because his hand was messed up. Like I I and and, you know he's covered up and he's going through these treatments where he's got his head locked in place and he's going through this for hours and they're sedating him and he's in and out of consciousness with all these drugs and. You know, basically, he's he's clinically high, you know, from from, you know, their drugs. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. and it's almost like I don't know if you've ever seen the Metallica one video, though, where they show the guy and he's just trapped in the thing. And he's just like over and over again. He just they're keeping him alive, but he can't express that he wants to die. Like it's almost this dramatic picture like that. But it's this little boy. So like, what was it like when he would come out and he would have these moments with you where he would just get these moments of clarity, you'd be, able, be able to have a conversation with him? Like, what were the things that he loved and what were the things that he was enjoying or things that he was doing or the bits of things where he'd get a glimpse of life or or the pleasures of life that were just keeping him alive? Because obviously, I think going to the hospice facility did that for him, right? Mm-hmm. Because in the hospital, it was just this, it was just this prodding and and just constant medical treatment and one you know, person in and out of the medical person in and out of the room, one after another, he goes to this hospice facility. And obviously it's this different level of care. And they're more about like making you feel comfortable and happy and, and honestly, environment and our mental health. Oh yeah. Like we can kill ourselves from, from worry and thought. Right. And so (laughs) I think, I think, I think it, 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 the hospice saved him. Right. And it changes his environment. They bring things into his room, you know, you're saying they bring in, they decorate it, they bring Christmas trees in, you know, but what was it that was keeping him alive through all this? I just can't even imagine, like, what were the things that he enjoyed? What was the things that when he'd get moments with you or things that you would do with him, was he able to go outside? Was he able to ever get natural sun? Was he able to, did he like watching sports? Like, what was it? What, what was, what was his passion?
2: Um, it was an interesting one because being autistic, (laughs) he actually says to me, you know, being autistic kind of saved me in a way because I was just, I'm happy to be in my own world and I'm okay to be in my own world. And so he said, being on my own, like really, he said, it wasn't fun. He said, but it didn't, it didn't affect me. Like it maybe would have affected other children. He said, but my autism, he said, I really feel kind of saved me. He was very passionate about his PlayStation and I think that beforehand he was a very, very active boy. Before he got sick he used to play rugby. He played rugby for the adults. He had a very, very uh, promising career as a rugby player And when he was a young boy. He also did jiu-jitsu. He was very active, very healthy, always out and about on his BMX. Like He was never in the house. He was never ill and this was just, yeah, this came out of the blue and um, I think what kept him alive, he did have once we realized that he was dying um he actually made a bucket list and his bucket list had some incredible things on it and he had he had a lot of them he got a lot of them he got uh the driving some fast cars he was able to they brought a donkey into his room (laughs) for Christmas this donkey came in all dressed up and he uh, got to hang out with owls he um well, see, we I mean, met Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. I don't know if you know who they are over here, but they were like Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. They're actors. Um, he actually loves them as actors. And so he got to meet them, got to meet uh, his favorite comedian called Russell Howard. He came to hang out with us a lot. He ended up being a really firm family friend. And um, I think he just, Darren very much lived in the moment. And from living in the moment, again, he wasn't really, he wasn't really looking at what was happening in the future. He was just like, okay, well, this is what's happening right now. and I've just got to get through this. And if I get through this, then what's next, you know, and he's, and he was looking, he was, he was very much looking forward to an end of it. Well, however that came, be that death, then okay, I'm good. Then if that's how this is going to end, then I'm okay with that. He He was, he actually got quite excited about the next phase of his life. What, what was going to be the transition. Um, which is, I think why he wanted to experience it and feel it. He wanted to experience that transition from this life to the next and whatever comes after this. Um, but he's always been a a deeply spiritual boy. He's always been very much, um, in touch with his spiritual side. And he, again, he, the, the things that he came out with, and I think. You know, people ask me and they say, well, how does a boy of 13 say things like that? You know, that I chose this and this. That, and I said, well, I think he had a lot of time on his own to think.
3: Mm. He had a lot of
2: time being in his own world. Now, who was he talking to while he was in his own world? Who was he, he you know, who was he like with his higher self, with God, or whatever you want to call it? And he, I, I think that he spent a lot of time in solace with external, with internal. Yeah. yeah absolutely, The Holy
1: Spirit, man. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, the, the the kid had it. You know, he had a uh, he had angels in his presence. He had the Holy Spirit around him. There's no way that that he could endure all that stuff. I mean, as human beings, we could only endure so much. And there was definitely like uh, God's hand was in this the whole time. Like, yeah. you know, you yeah. had angelic intervention, and not to mention you're his angel. Like, you're amazing. <laughs>
3: I just to hear
1: about you and you you being a bouncer and a bodybuilder and to hear this tremendous story and. I mean, it's heart wrenching for me as a as a father too. You know, uh, just to think that when you talk about laying next to him in bed and just fear to wake up, you know, and, and have his hand be cold, I just can't imagine. Like, you are literally amazing. And let me just stop right here and tell you, but you can continue on. But I just have to tell you, like, Thank uh, you. man, I, I'm so glad you're you're sharing this with our listeners because it, it, the more people that that need to hear this, if there's one person. That this helps through a through a difficult situation, then yeah. then we're doing tremendous things here. And your story yeah. has helped I'm countless amounts of people I know. His story, your story collectively, it's amazing. But continue yeah. on, I decided to give you praise. Thank you.
2: I, I appreciate that. I, I very often say I didn't do anything. I was just a conduit. I was just, I was, I sat what I would consider now. I didn't consider it then, but I would consider it now when I look back in hindsight that I sat in prayer quite a lot and asked for answers and I don't think it was any coincidence that I find these certain plants that God happened to put here and that I am given the message just get into a tincture look at these little ideas
1: oh the guy at the gym the guy at the gym the lady with the with the magical jar under the bed like those were people that God specifically placed in your path that were there for a reason like uh, yes, oh, yeah yes for sure <laughs>
2: you read my book you'll uh, you'll there's a, there was a few yeah. of the, the few people that kind of and I never saw them again you know you see them the ones they say something and you go okay and you listen if you if you're if you're conscious and you're aware enough to to listen everybody gets messages all the time but most people are too unaware and too busy to to really see the synchronicities or the or the beautiful serendipitous things that are put in front of us they don't see it and i i've always been I've always been a rebel. I've always been the one that asked why, why, Why?" I used to get in trouble and why, you know, Um, I would never take no for an answer. I was like, no, there has to be, there has to be something else. That that can't be it, you know? And so I've always been like that. And um, I think obviously really helps, but yeah, Darren, um, Darren tried to starve himself to death for the following six months um, because he just, he said, mom, I don't want to be here. I can't, I can't go back. Um, And the, the hospital, the doctors literally sat in front of him and said, because uh, I, I posed the question, I said, well, is that him better now? Like, what's going to happen? And they said, well, we have no idea. He could drop down dead in two weeks. We have no idea. We don't know what's going on. With- We've never seen this before. And so to tell a boy of 14 that, okay, you're well now, but actually next week you could be dead, how is he meant to even remotely start to recover when it's nothing is promised? And the fact that, you know, it, it was just, it was a crazy six months. And I I always say that the cancer was one thing because cancer is, I mean, it doesn't just happen is there's reasons. I know a lot more about it now, but it's almost like that was an external thing that was kind of happening to him. And he just had to get it. He had to just get through this. Whereas this was his choice. He was making a choice that I'm not eating. I'm not going to eat and you can't make me. And so after six months of this, he got down to 24 kilos, which is, uh, I'm I'm not sure what that is in pounds, but it's not a lot. (laughs) It's not a lot. And I've never seen anything like it as far as skin and bones, apart from things like, you know, documentaries about Auschwitz and stuff like that you know he literally bags the boat and that's what he was in
1: front I bet you he looked like uh what's uh what's his name the guy that played Batman and he played that the machinist and Mm -hmm. he lost all that weight for that role and (laughs) that's what I pictured but a little kid you know
2: yeah it's crazy the distortion like the eyes get massive the teeth get massive because everything else is just shrinking away around them and and the hospital actually said to me, they said, listen, if he doesn't start eating soon, we're going to have to section him, sedate him and force feed him because he's going to have a heart attack. We're going to treat him like an anorexic. And I said, can he please have some psychological help first before you do that? And they said, no, he does not qualify. So <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, so it came down to my pop psychology type of thing. I had to kind of try and bribe him and and nothing would work. So by this point, I had got to know some other people because when the cannabis did what it did and I was like I can't be the only one so I started you know looking and finding people in the local area and I got put in touch with Bristol Cannabis Social Club and obviously completely illegal all of this is completely underground but I was I like <laughs> them and I got to know some of those people and they said listen um because I stopped giving him the tincture because it I, I didn't think that it would do anything for his weight or his mental health I just you know once his immune system got well enough I, I the jar ran out and I stopped. I didn't give him any more. And they said, Listen, there's a guy in Spain who I think might be able to help you. You just need to get over to Spain and go and see him. And I, you know, he he's been helping children with cancer for about 18 years. And I really think he can help you. And so we said to the hospital, said, Listen, we want to take him on hosp- on holiday. Um, we haven't been away as a family for like five years now at this point. And I said, I want to go away and if he's the same when we come back, then I will hand him over to you because I don't know what else to do with him. Like I'm at the end of my tether. And they agreed and said, okay. So we took him away for two weeks. We went, we met this guy called Jeff and Jeff gave us a syringe, a tiny little one mil syringe of what people know in this country as RSO, FICO, Rick Simpson oil, um, full extract cannabis oil. It's the very heavily, heavily concentrated oils from the cannabis plant. And he said, just give him a tiny little bit of this and I really feel that it's going to help him. And I was like, okay, it's it's worth it. I'm not, I like, I don't care that I'm getting some drugs or some stranger I'm <laughs> Like, I, anything is worth a try at this point. And so we got back to the villa, and I gave Darren just the tiniest little bit. And about half an hour later, I was prepping some lunch. I was just chopping some vegetables up and stuff. And I said, look, I'm making some lunch. Does anyone want anything? And I was wholeheartedly expecting the usual no, like the grunt of you know the resistance. And he shouted up, "Make me loans! I'm starving." <laughs> So he'd give him the huge amount of the munchies. It just like, and he came up the stairs, like grinning from ear to ear. His eyeballs were pink and he was just like,
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I and I fed him and he ate for 12 hours that day and he ate for 12 hours the next day and the next day and he just didn't stop eating. And I mean, he was a skinny kid and we would take him down to the restaurants on the seafront and he would order all this food, and the the you know the waiting staff. I'm like, is he going to eat all this? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, he's going to eat all this. And and so after two weeks of that, we got back to hospital in the UK, and they took me into a, a side room, and they took Darren away and did some obs on him and stuff. And they said he he doesn't want to die anymore. I Said no, I know. He said his mental health is improved by three hundred percent. I said, yep, I know. And she said, and he's put on four kilos. I said, yep. But she said the holiday did the world a good. I said, yes, it was the holiday. We will stick to that. It was the holiday. And of course, in part, it is, you know, that kind of different different environment absolutely is is a lot nicer, you know. But the cannabis strain that he had was called lemon haze. And lemon haze is is very well known for, for increasing an appetite. And so he got the munchies. We got home and there was a syringe on the on the uh, floor that had been posted. Someone had posted a 20 mil syringe of this oil. And Darren has been on that oil um, every single day since June 2014. Every single day, without fail, he has the oil every day. And he will continue to do so for the rest of his life. He's 24 in about four days. <laughs> he's 24. Um, and, yeah, he still takes his medicine every day. And there's no sign of his cancers coming back, albeit they are in his bone marrow. Uh, he's, he's, he has what they call... Um, they give him tests every year for what they call is the, the delayed onset reactions, the long-term delayed reactions to treatment or something like this. Because they know if they can get someone past five years, they go tick, cure, year six is when all that chemotherapy and that radiotherapy really starts to take hold of the body. And that's when, that's when it comes back. But they've already got their tick for their cure. So it's all good. Yeah, the numbers, the statistics. So he has this test every single year and they are waiting for his test results to get worse because that's what you would see over long-term exposure to chemotherapy and radiotherapy over time. That's what you would see. And they're getting better and better and better and they can't understand it. And he said, because I take cannabis every day, what, why are you listening to me? He's put it on his records. He's put it in his notes. He's like, nobody wants to know about it. His oncologist literally put his fingers in his ears and said, I towed the party line. I don't want to know. And it's infuriating because it's very infuriating because he's not, yes, he's an anomaly, but he's not that much of an anomaly. you know. And I've been working now with cancer patients for 10 years because I wrote my book, went on national TV and I became a beacon. And everybody knew who I was. And, and so I, for 10 years, have been working with terminal cancer patients and they have been told that there's nowhere else for them to go and that they're to go home and get their affairs in order they turn to the Google gods and they find me and they get in touch with me and I get what they need for them. And, you know, it doesn't save everybody because it doesn't, because it's not a cure-all, it's a tool. And sometimes people are just far too far down the line. They just, unfortunately, sometimes the body has just been put through so much that it can't come back. You know, we we can always buy people time and we can most often give people a better quality of life, but we'd, not everybody's going to live forever. We can't live forever. And we're all going to die at one point. And so, um, you know, this is why I was, I was saying to Alex earlier, I was like, this is not a cure all. This is not a, a one size fits all. It's not a, you can continue to eat McDonald's, continue to take pharmaceuticals, continue to have a really detrimental um, mental health. You can continue all these really things that are going to push your body further towards disease. Don't think that you can take cannabis and it's going to negate all that because it's not. It's just a tool and we need to be holistic. We need to do everything we possibly can at it. Um, but the going just before I stop, then we can go and, you know, can ask me any questions, is that his hand, the neurectomy, the paralyzed forever hand, he's never gonna use that hand ever again hand. Two weeks after him being on that neat oil, that undiluted oil, he started telling me his hand was hurting. I said, It can't. Like you they literally severed and cauterized the nerve so that there was no connection there. You cannot feel that. And I thought, is this phantom pains, like those pains? said mum I'm telling you it's like electric shocks going down my fingers and I would say that within within a year he had full range of movement back and the only things he can't feel are his fingertips but everything else has come back in fact he took a video of himself rolling a joint and took it into his doctor and said tell me how my hand it's not meant to work is rolling the medicine that allows my hand to work it's just like didn't want to know didn't want to know it it pushes them it's outside of their comfort zone plus we also have uh the cancer act of 1939 in the uk where it specifically says that you're not allowed to mention anything other than the government ordered oh. chemotherapy radiotherapy. Yeah. so
1: you know you know well we know the reefer madness propaganda like this goes and you know you know the show that you're on and you know that we're conspiracy theorists and i want alex to jump in because i know he's got uh, some questions for you as well But I just think about the propaganda, you know, and and they do, they take a Hippocratic oath. I've heard in your story, I heard fear mongering, I heard bullying, I heard denial. I mean, it's just like, it's crazy that we could have this evidence. And I've even just recently started researching this, have been been sent articles even about uh, uh, tobacco, you know, and nicotine and and even some of the medicinal powers that that stuff has and how it, it, it actually kept COVID at bay. And they said, oh, smokers are at such high risk, but nicotine actually somehow negates like, I don't know how it works scientifically, but you know, those people weren't being affected by COVID because the nicotine blocks somehow, you know what I mean? And, and, and of course the stuff like this is demonized and, and, uh, you know, cannabis obviously has been demonized and we know like God places natural substances on this earth for us to use. And like this man-made science, just like a lot of other man-made stuff, you know, the, the sole controllers of this, this is what I think of when I think of the, the pharmakia, I think of there's money in the prolonged treat treatment. There's not money in the cure. And there is a conspiracy. There is a cover up and the sole controllers that, that make billions off of this. I mean, just go research like the Rockefellers and, (laughs) you know you know, a petroleum based medicines and then they create cancers and then they create the institutions. Yeah, exactly. And follow where the money trail goes and it exposes like the wizard behind the curtain. And, and, you know, it's, it's apparent that what you were doing worked, that the natural medicines that God put on this place work, and it's been demonized and people will call us crazy for saying these things or, Asking critical questions. I remember I changed my my uh, primary pra- uh, my pr- primary care physician uh, during the pandemic when I went to go just for a regular blood panel and go get checked and you know, just a regular uh, checkup. You know, in my early forties, and I, you know they want to check this, this, and that out. And you know, I was asking legitimate questions about the VA double C. You know what I mean? And and uh, I had some very uh, I felt important questions that I was asking. And one of them would being an advanced EMT who used to work in a plasma center. I was asking them, what about the clinical phases and clinical trials that you guys just skip and you just release this to the public and you say it's safe and effective? You guys don't know the long-term effects. What about uh mRNA being a gene altering solution? You know, what about these graphene gels? What about this? What about that? And and, and right away he's like, oh. You're just one of those conspiracy theorists that, oh, you know what? You either, you either take this or you're putting everybody at risk. And, and he treated me like I was a complete imbecile. And you know what? I walked, turned around, walked out of that room. I called the, cause it's a, it's a primary care group and I called their corporate offices. And I said, you either change my physician or like, you're going to lose me as a patient. Because I felt disrespected. I'm asking valid questions. Don't write me off like I'm stupid. Like I'm actually asking questions that people should be asking. I'm not an imbecile. And it completely pissed me off. And you know what I have? I'm just going to say it. I've lost faith in our medical system. Like I've got, I got. I, I will go for trauma. Like if I'm in a car accident, obviously, or I take a gunshot wound, Lord forbid, or something happens or I break a limb, like I'm going to have to go. But other than that, man, I would rather, you know, I would rather do it at home. Uh, I would rather learn about natural supplements, eating healthy, avoiding fast food, avoiding high sugar contents, you know, uh, uh, keeping a positive mentality like, you know, grounding, sun gazing, you know, uh, all these things. It's it's important like it and people are just so reliant on everything. It's just they're they're so reliant to be spoon fed information. They're so reliant to be to be connected to the healthcare system. They're so reliant for public assistance, whatever it is that you gotta understand that these people want you on the tit. You know what I mean? And and it's not till we get off and we start to think for ourselves and ask these critical questions and challenge them and present this evidence to the people and wake people up that we're gonna have real change, you know, because it's 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 insane to me.
2: Yeah. It's it's a heavy amount of indoctrination. And you know, we've we again every single system in our world right now is geared towards create creating us to be very narrow minded. You know, the education system um you know is getting children at such a young age, what are they being taught? If they're just indoctrinated, they're indoctrinated to never ask any questions. This is how it is. Just go with it. You're gonna be a good little taxpayer one day and you're gonna get in the system and just keep the wheels going and that's it. And you're not you're not encouraged to be a a free thinker. You're not encouraged. You're a critical thinker. If you start asking questions, you're a pain. You're 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 being you're being obtrusive. You're being you're disturbing the class. You're all of these things. Just ask questions. And I, I've always told my children very much, ask, like ask all the questions, like be a pain in someone's butt, ask all the questions, like because you, you you deserve to have the answers. And a lot of the time is they don't know the answers. And because they don't know the answers, they feel stupid that they don't know the answers. So they shut you down or they don't know the answers. And if going and looking and finding the answers would terrify them. If they really understood the mRNA, if they really understood graphene, the hydrogel, they really understood that stuff. It would. It would. They have to be. Um, they have to be blind. They have the cognitive dissonance. They have to be. Um, you know. They, they have to be blind. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to be in this system. And I think a lot of yeah. people into these systems because they have a very good heart. You became an EMT because you care about people. Teachers care and they want to. They want to educate. Doctors care about people, but they get themselves into such a system that has hijacked their good nature and is using it for evil. And that's the thing. These doctors and nurses aren't bad people, but they are being used by a disgusting, very nefarious system to do their dirty work for them. And, you know, it's hard for these people who are in this system, A, to admit that, to become aware of that. It's terrifying. It's like people now, you know, there's a lot more information coming out about, you know, these these jabs. And it's like, even the the new information, I've got people going, no, don't want to know about it. Don't want it. Because cognitive dissonance, keeps them saying because if they had to understand what they've injected themselves with it's terrifying to them because they're, then they're terrified and they don't know what to do about it so ignorance is bliss and it's easier to exactly to that way, you know
1: but the, um but not <laughs> it's really yeah I'm but the thing away. is too to be aware of it dude there's things that you can do to combat it and obviously yeah. like, you did, like they said they didn't think that he'd ever have have use of his limbs or be able to have feeling and look all that stuff regenerated you know, and there is stuff, you know, uh, we have individuals that we talked to on this podcast that have done extensive research on, on the effects of the injectables and like what you can do to expurge it from your body and, you know, intermittent fasting and and natural supplements and, mm-hmm.
3: and, and, <laughs> and,
1: and, and all this stuff, you know what I mean? There, there are things that we can't be doing, but if you're just going to live in ignorant bliss and, and not acknowledge it, like then, then yeah, you're just, yeah, you know, like you're it all comes
2: to radical responsibility. I think you know a lot of people don't want to take radical responsibility, and I've had this over the years where I have said, you know, um, I take responsibility that my kid got cancer in the first place, and people go, "No, it's not your fault. You didn't do it." And I go, no, no. I got him vaccinated with every single thing going when he was born. I was on I don't know how many drugs when I was even being in labor. When I got pregnant with him, I wasn't in the best of health. My my his dad wasn't the best of health." Like you take sour eggs and you take rotten milk, like you're going to sour milk and rotten eggs and you make a cake. It's you know, we have to, we have to take responsibility that when we bring life into this world, the state that we are in currently gets transformed, gets, gets transferred onto our child. Then that child is born and we get them vaccinated. We put them in the mainstream. We give them formula. We give them paracetamol, you know, pharmaceuticals. We We do all the normal stuff. We give them sweets. And. And then fast they get fast, fast, yeah, fast food because their friends are having it, and then they get cancer. And it's like, oh, this just happened. No, it didn't just happen. It didn't just happen. I'm sorry, your lifestyle. There are there's a very very small amount of people that it's genetic, very tiny tiny amount of people that's genetic. The rest of it is environmental and choices that we make. Every single thing that goes in on and around your body is either feeding or fighting disease. It's your choice. But we have to be aware of this and most people aren't aware of it because it's normal my mum will literally say well they wouldn't be able to sell it in the supermarkets if it was harmful my mum literally has said that to me and I'm like you are living in some other world I don't know you know but that's that's the thinking of a lot of people and so they just normally go on about their day they do what's normal normal is making us sick normal is not how we're meant to be living as human beings you know it's, it's yeah. not normal to be sprayed in the sky it's not normal to have EMFs and and Wi-Fi powers, (laughs) it's not normal. We are energetic beings held together by vibration and all of this interference outside is messing around with us on a cellular level and our cells are incredibly fragile and that's how cancer can develop in, in lots. There's loads of different ways that cancer can develop, but predominantly it's about our choices and what we do. And when I started talking about taking radical responsibility for my child's cancer, I upset a lot of other oncology mums who didn't want to take responsibility because it was just too hard for them. Um, I got, you know, I upset a lot of people and I, and I said, you know what I said, the moment that I said that I was responsible was the moment that I said, I could do something about it because if you don't take radical responsibility, you are disempowered. The moment that you take responsibility for your situation, it gives you a whole new level of empowerment. You then have the ability to do something about it. Exactly. Like you say if you just sit with your head in the sand, nothing's going to change. But if you go, do you know what? Yeah, my lifestyle did this to me. Yeah, I've got stage four colon cancer, probably because I've eaten crap all my life and I haven't exercised and I haven't done this and I haven't done that. Okay, so now I know where I've gone wrong. What can I do to undo that rather than this just happened to me? Because this just happened to me also means you can just save me. So I'll go to my doctor and I'll put my life in their hand because I didn't, I didn't get in this state by myself, so I can't get out of it by myself. This doctor's going to save me. No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. But they're going to wring as much money out of you as they possibly can until you yeah, don't. That,
1: that's about that's as it. funny as thinking the next person that we elect is going to save us in our situation too, man. I'm sorry, but I ain't putting no faith in anybody, but Yeshua himself, man. Like,
2: yeah, no one's coming to save me.:.: <laughs>
1: Yeah, dude, look at the man in the mirror, the woman in the mirror. Yeah. And think about the choices you're making that day. Make the best ones you can make that day try to keep the most positive mindset and just start with your world around you and if we just yeah. on that and turned off this these idiot boxes and thought for yeah. ourselves the world could change instantaneously yeah. i always say that but it's yeah. just they they have this level of control and through social media and listen we all use it and you know i consume some of this stuff too but you gotta you gotta learn it's just like <laughs> you gotta learn to discern uh you know, be able to eat the, the meat and, and spit out the bones. You know what I mean? That, that's the way life is. You got to take what's good and discard what's bad, you know? And uh, it's just, people have so much trouble. The reason why we're in this mess though, is because we have just believed, we believe everything that we're told and we think that these people are, have our best interests at hand. And that's what we're trying to expose the wizard behind the curtain, because these people don't have our best interests at hand that run our institutions. I mean, they're after the nuclear family home. They're after our kids' uh, minds, you know, all this gender confusion and, and, and all this stuff. Like, yeah. we, see, we see the plan, you know, and what can, what are we, what can we do to combat it? Well, it yeah. starts with us talking about it. It starts with us shining a light on it. And I'm sorry, man. Like, when I see the village about to get invaded and I don't sound the horn, like, then I'm responsible, too. Because yeah. I feel like God has revealed these truths to me and Alex. And that's why we feel so passionate about why, what we do is because I don't want to have to stand before my maker when, when my card gets pulled and him say, I showed you all this stuff. I revealed these truths to you and you sat around and did nothing. Like, no, man, we have to get involved. We have to. And, and using our voices, God spoke. The word is his sword, you know, by us speaking the truth that's doing God's work. So I commend you for what you're doing. And, uh, Hey, Alex, man, uh, you jump in you got anything for Callie I know we're getting short and running out of time you <laughs> kind of sat back and listened to this
0: amazing story but uh yeah I yeah. I've been fortunate enough to talk to Callie uh, before too
3: <laughs> and, and,
0: then I, <laughs> and then and then I sit and I and I listen and it's it's just like you know I'm on the porch and I'm just listening to her tell a story and uh I'm emotional the whole time because you know I have kids too and I can't imagine you know what you went through and then thinking about what my mom went through and I wish I would have known you 10 years ago and you know um, we Firmamental is all about mind, body and spirit, strength and I'm, I'm here with Raul right now you know to try and avenge my mom and I met Callie Blackwell to help avenge what happened to her because nobody deserves that so I just want to say thanks I don't have you know I don't have any questions if we bring you back for part two then i'll have some wild questions about like
2: i'd love that <laughs> pictures
0: oh. of the mushrooms and all the different plants oh yeah.
2: yeah i have oh, ayahuasca has, like, questions
0: pods. for you too and i i you know i could tell you my ay- ayahuasca story and
2: oh uh, I'd yeah plant- we'd love to hear that one they? So. yeah i think you know there's and kind of raoul said it at the beginning as well is that if one person you know my son sacrificed so much. My son sacrificed way more than I did. Like I, I was just a spectator, and I, I, I mean, I just a spectator here, but I was obviously an active participant. But my son, I believe, sacrificed so, so much and took me on such a journey that there was no way that I could sit on that. God didn't give me that to sit on. He didn't give me that to 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 be quiet and go hide somewhere with it. Like that was that wasn't for me. That wasn't for my son. That was just something way, way bigger. And so I knew that I had to get it out and I had to tell people and I had to write a book because I also knew how the media like twist things and being that Darren was the only one in the world anyway, like he'd already had a big media and, you know, um, big media kind of coverage and, and I knew what they were like. And I thought I had to write everything down in black and white so no one could twist my words. And I have to get this out there, even if it means that they put me in prison, like I have to put it out there. I mean, they crucified Jesus. Like. I, did, I yeah I knew what could have been coming for me, you know, but I also knew that the truth was way, way bigger and and I kind of also think that um also faith is another reason why people are so lost. they think people have lost their faith in and having faith in the right places they put their faith in a man in a white coat, they put their faith, yeah. in Joe Biden, they put their faith in whoever sits in that, they put their faith in in science and they put their faith in they they are so far away from where they should be putting their faith in which is whatever you want to call it your higher self god universe whatever people want to call it all it's all the same to me personally and i kind of i because i think i didn't i didn't tell this story on um billy's podcast because it wasn't really relevant but i think it's maybe relevant for your listeners and yourselves that um it was I think it was about three months into Darren's treatment uh, back in 2010. And I was just by myself as to my kid's going to die. This is horrendous. Why me? Why him? This is awful. This is awful. And I was in my kitchen and I had a window in my kitchen. And all of a sudden, as I walked through the kitchen, this, this bright ray of sunshine just came through my window and hit me so much that it stopped me in my tracks. I literally stood stock still in the kitchen and I heard he's not going to die. And I, and I didn't just hear it, but I felt, I felt it. And I just, and even now, even now I get, cause I will never forget that feeling. And I, I just heard the words as clear as day. And I knew, and I knew that he wasn't going to die. And all through the whole next three and a half years, I think that's why I was able to be kind of not—I wasn't nonchalant about it—but I was quite like, "Well, I know he's not going to die because I know because God told me. I know. I, know. I didn't know that I didn't kind of put it as the God told me at that point, but I, my higher self, whatever it was, I got a message. I was divinely told that he wasn't going to die. And I
1: was it up. audible or in your head?
2: It was in my head. It was absolutely in my yeah. head. But it wasn't me. <laughs> it was you know. Yeah. And, the the feeling that I got in my solar plexus after that was just this deep knowing. And you can't explain that unless they've had the experience of a deep knowing of something. Yeah. And so no matter what was going on, you know, even when they're telling me, oh, he's probably going to die. Like I was like, you know, I no, he's not, he's not, he's not. And then I can tell you that Darren also told me throughout this, I'm not going to die for this, you know, even though towards the end, like he really wanted to. Um, and it was the night before his bandage came off. The night before his bandage came off, I stood in the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I was screaming and I said, you lied to me. You lied to me. You told me that he wasn't going to die. You lied to me and look where I am. Like, how could you do that to me? How could you let me down like that? I had faith in you. I trusted you for three and a half years just to get me here and you let me down like this. Like, how could you do that? I'll never trust you again. Ne- you know, on all this, I just died. Dy- I was just absolutely in- insane, I guess. And um, And then I... You know, and then the next day, bandage came off thing. And then I heard you just had to wait, just be patient. (laughs) Well,
1: look at, look at, I mean, we're mere humans and we don't have the strength of, of Christ. Right. But even Jesus himself said, why have you forsaken? There was a moment where he asked, why have you forsaken me? You know, and that showed his, his humanity. But like, I always think of like my Lord and savior, man, people paint this, you know, Flimsy, frail-looking guy with a with a with a thin beard and you know a few droplets of blood. Nah, man, he was beaten, battered, bruised. He was brave. He stood up to the he stood up to the greatest kingdom, the greatest establishment, the biggest religion, the biggest the the institutions. He stood up to it, and and I mean, we're talking about a guy that went into the wilderness for forty days and forty nights in the desert and survived with nothing. You know what I mean? Fasting the whole time and had the devil approach him during a, a 40 day fast in the desert and rebuked him. You know what I mean? Like that is not uh, that, that is not a normal dude. Like, I mean, he was, he was spot free. He didn't have death inside of him. He had to take death upon himself. He had no sin. You know what I mean? He, he took it upon himself to die. You know what I mean? Cause otherwise he would have lived an eternal life and he could have, you know what I mean? But he went, he knew what he had to do and he went and he did it and you know what and that's what the way I look at you man you're serious are an angel and you are a, a testament to god and his glory and his power because you knew what you had to do and even though there was moments where you questioned like ah, oh, and you got frustrated you still executed what needed to be done so like hats off to you <laughs>
2: i never i never ever my intuition now i've never ever since that time where it was like see. You just had to be a bit more patient. I told you that he wasn't going to die. <laughs> I meant it. Trust. <laughs> and it was like my face was pushed to the absolute brink. Like my face was pushed. Um, but ever since then, you know, my face has been I, I, I walk in courage with faith. And I, and I, and again, this is it. when Alex says, you know, you haven't been, you haven't been like got, you know, they haven't come and got you. I'm protected. I know I'm protected. I yeah. feel it. I feel it. And I, and I have to keep that in my mind because if I don't, it's very easy to then go into fear, and I don't come from a place of fear. I try not to, anyway. I'm not perfect, or you know, I try to always come from a place of love and not fear. Fear is very low vibrational. It's I don't want to be down yeah. in that place, you know. I'd much rather be in in love and in gratitude, and and so I I and I always say as well. I'm like you know, whatever is whatever is waiting for me, like will be waiting for me, and whatever happens, I'll be okay. Like I'll always be okay, no matter what happens. And I have that faith that no matter what, I will always be okay. And so I've got nothing to yeah. fear, you know, nothing to fear.
0: Well, I, fear that- I yeah. want to say quickly, Kelly, that, um, I don't know if we can promote it right now, your ebook. Uh, I read Kelly's ebook in about an hour and I think it was like 50 pages. And I went through that thing and it was amazing. And I can't recommend that enough. Like, uh, I mean, this other book that you have, The the Boy in Seven Billion, I mean, the sales, the the numbers are crazy, but seriously, everybody needs to read your ebook. So if I can put that in the show notes, I will. And if you want me to, Absolutely. everybody, yeah. everybody, everybody yeah. needs to read that book and then contact you.
2: Yeah. You yeah. will have to come and get it manually because I can't have it on any platform because it gets shut down. <laughs> it's having me oh, back. Okay. So, yeah. so it so,
1: has to come. So to- So tell the people about uh, how they can, where they can find you. Tell them a little bit about your book and uh, where they could get that. And you know, we'll share whatever email you're comfortable with with people that want to have questions for you or just want to reach out to you because you you touch their heart. So just just tell them those few little things, and we will definitely be scheduling. Around yep. two with you because, ladies and gentlemen,
2: <laughs> I want to talk out the flat.
1: Well, love, <laughs> yes, she wants to talk flat earth. She wants to talk esoteric subject matter. Yes, I and do. that's that, that's that's what we love to do here. So we are definitely bringing you back. You're going to be a return guest, and you're going to be yes, your your firm fam. We call our our listeners firmamentalists, and we call our we call the people that we connect with the firm family. So uh, you're definitely firm fam. But uh, go ahead and tell them. uh, Thank tell them, not you. sure books and and where they can contact you
2: i love that thank you so much so yeah my book um the boy in seven billion is available on amazon unfortunately i I haven't got it anywhere else at the moment but um i will be just waiting for a shipment over to the u.s so people can get in touch with me directly if they want to get that as well now my ebook is probably best being email me at cali blackwell consultancy at gmail.com Although I will give Alex my link tree as well so that if people can get onto my link tree. Then you can either WhatsApp me, email me, go on my social media, everything is on there. Get in touch with me directly. And I will send you a copy of my ebook. And also, so my ebook basically is I for 10 years I've been working with people and I found myself repeating myself a lot and teaching them about cannabis and how to, you know, uh, dose and different ratios for different cancers and because there's lots of different things and it's not a one size fits all. It's very, very important that we don't, you know, mix it with certain medications. It's very important that people take it properly. Again, it's a plant that can seriously be abused, and I, it's not about abusing the plant. It's about using it medicinally as God intended it to be. You don't have to be yeah. healed. You don't have to, you know. Um, yeah. And so I try to teach people. So my my ebook is basically kind of ten years worth of knowledge and stuff in a very, very basic way. There's a lot of Q and As in there. So there's a lot of FAQs where um, a lot of questions can be answered already that you may have about cannabis there's dosing guidance in there there's ways to make tinctures like I basically try and teach you everything so that there's a basic idea so that if you do need me if you because I run consultations with people all the time um, if you do need me to hold your hand if you do have something serious going on and you do need me to guide you and help you with my 10 years worth of experience with this I'm more than happy to do that. But if you have the ebook first and foremost, then it gives people a really good basic understanding so that when they do come to me, I'm not having to, I'm not having, you know, we get to the meat and bones of things. We're not, we're not really having to, you know, talk about the 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 basics. Um, but with that ebook, you could go away and treat yourself. You know, you you could go away and and help yourself with, with the information that's in there. You could get yourself in a protocol. Um you can there's dietary advice in there as well you know supplements that we should be looking at taking things that we sh- definitely shouldn't be having like refined sugar absolutely get it gone um, and things like that you know there's a lot of information in there and I just I, I give it away for nothing it's it's you know open source but I just can't have it on a platform because the moment I put it on a platform they take it down they they shut me yeah, down uh, they don't want it out and they don't want that kind of information out there so I'm too much of a threat you know <laughs>
1: I know, folks, and uh, this uh, won't be released as a video. You're just going to hear the audio version of this. But uh, yeah, there. I, I don't understand how this woman can be considered a threat. She just shines bright.
3: <laughs>
1: no, well, you know what? I... But we're when you're a threat to the establishment and the powers that be, that you know they're saying, But but we are going to win. We are going to win. You know, yeah. one battle at a time. But we're going to win. They can't keep a lid on the truth. and we will prevail. The truth will prevail. And everything that's done in darkness will be brought to the light
2: Amen absolutely it will yeah
1: yeah <laughs> oh, yeah, you're over the target for sure yeah, well thank you and uh yeah man oh, we want to get yeah. into some uh some level earth geocentric biblical cosmology type stuff with you too Oh so yeah we'll bring you back and we'll have fun and and now that we got this out of the way we could have fun and, and run free on the next one we could talk about some uh, psychedelic experiences. Cause I know Alex has had some, I've had some, you know, and, and like you said, I think it's just like that with everything, everything in moderation, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, everything. even, even God turned water to wine, but if you're abusing it, you know what I mean? Like put it, you got, you got to walk away from it, you know? And I think same thing with, you know, with, with marijuana, you know, you can smoke yourself stupid and eat a whole box of Apple Jacks, or you could use it to help you rest or eat a healthy meal or, you know, to alleviate some pain or, Or, you know, even for a little bit of creative. Yeah. But, but like if you're just smoking it like all day, every day, and you're not going to work and you're just laying around and playing Xbox for six hours, that ain't good for you. You know what I mean? But everything in moderation, you know what I mean? And, and it does have a place and it does have a purpose. That's it. And like you said earlier,
2: yep. Like you said earlier, you know, tobacco, even cocaine, you know, the cocoa leaf, cocaine with, you know, but man gets hold of these things and turns it like even, I mean, you can look at foods. You know, we can have food. Look what food is nowadays, because we've got involved in genetically modified stuff. We're now nutritionally starved, but our bellies are full. And and nothing as uh, nothing on this planet now is as God intended it to be. We have bastardized everything to a point where it's no Mm -hmm. longer as human beings, and we have to get back to. Using these things that serve us in the way that they were intended, and that's all plants, all medicines, you know. So, yeah, I'm I'm here, but I'm really excited about a, a psychedelic. We could talk about flat earth. I have lots of ideas that I'd love to talk about. I have.
1: Oh, we're down to take so questions. Where our swords are pretty sharp right now. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to some of our previous episodes, but uh, Alex and I just did one that I'm pretty proud of, and Alex uh, wrote something awesome. It's called Firmadome, Eradicating the Deception. Man, that was an awesome episode we just recently released. But we got, I mean, we've talked to guys that used to work for NASA. We've talked to, you know, people that have have really, that really know their stuff when it comes to biblical cosmology, Flat Earth Dave, you know, Mark Sargent, Sean Hibbler. And by the way, talking about Sean Hibbler, they need to make a movie out of You're in Your Son's Life. So whether (laughs) it's a a full on, like, I don't know about Hollywood. I wish they would. But, uh, (laughs) Somebody needs to turn this into a movie man. Whoever you're missing out on a blockbuster movie cuz this it sounds like this could be a great movie. You know, it would be such a, a a story for the cinema. But even had has anybody shot a documentary about what you and your son went through? No. Dude, I, I nothing. Dude, we have, I we're, love we're, it. we we rub elbows and we're friends with Sean Hibbler. And he's a documentary filmmaker. He's made uh, documentaries. He did the, all the level movies, the flat Earth movies, all three level movies. He's done movies um, on nine eleven. He's doing one on Tartaria and the, and and the mud floods. He's doing. He's done one on 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 COVID nineteen called Bluevid nineteen. He's got a lot of stuff, but he's like, dude, when he, I'm gonna send this to him and be like, bro, you need to hear this woman's story. You need to hear about. Uh, of uh, her own research that she did and how she nursed her son back to health. Because I think this would be a tremendous documentary. I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> It'd
2: be amazing. It'd be amazing. And the last 10 years have just been crazy. Like, I, you know, and people said that Darren was an anomaly and stuff. And I've seen, I've helped people from stage four pancreatic cancer get into remission. I've seen mm-hmm. stage four colon. I've seen people with three weeks to live who are still alive. I've seen, I've just seen one miracle after another, and another, and another, and I'm like, this is not, you know, this is something that everybody needs to know about. And um, yeah, one day, one day it will. One day, you, you're absolutely right. You know, the darkness, the darkness seems to be in control at the moment, but it's, it's, it's tipping. It's tipping. I can see it. I can feel it. I, I see the world changing into very much. People are finding their way back to God and the light, and people are turning their backs, or they're not. Or they, or they, they're, they're absolutely going with that, and that's okay. That's okay. But one day,
1: like wheat has to be separated. The wheat has yes. to be separated from the shaft, right? And yeah. there is going to be that separation. Um, and yeah, we want to be the <laughs> we, we won't, don't want to be the one that's cast to the side.
2: No, no, absolutely not. So, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I really, really yeah, appreciate no
1: it. It was a lot of fun. No, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, From the brother Alex and myself. Uh, Tremendous episode into the firmamentalist out there. You already know what's up. Protect your dome, and we'll see you next time. Peace.
3: How do we find ourselves here? Within these walls and chains, as a tear droplets, who is there to blame?